0: you have your bibles with you this morning and i'm sure that you do take them out please and turn to the book of daniel and i want you to turn to daniel chapter two and uh so we're looking forward to this morning's message and as you're turning to daniel uh, chapter two um it has been a good weekend just to let you know because college football is back in session amen uh, the georgia bulldogs won my team the texas tech red raiders choked once again they gave up 21 points in three minutes and lost in overtime that is the life of a texas tech red raider no hope whatsoever but praise be to god that the book of daniel offers us hope amen Amen. Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 2. We're in the middle of this series, uh, simply titled uh, The Book of Daniel, God is in Control. And uh, we are simply uh, walking our way through this book. We are going uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, in this great, great book that's known as the ABCs of Biblical Prophecy. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the book of Daniel. And so we're looking at this book, and I think it's very appropriate that we studied this book, especially in light of what's going on in our world and going on in our, our culture. And many people wondering, is this the end times or or not? Well, uh, Daniel is going to instruct us in this and give us wisdom on, on how we are to live in difficult circumstances and, and how we are to live uh, in the end times. So we're looking at this book um, by the title of Daniel, written by a... By a godly man who who was kidnapped when he was a young boy. He was taken into a godless society. And there he lives the rest of his life in a godless society. But but something interesting takes place in the life of Daniel. He actually thrives, doesn't he? He thrives in a very godless society society. And so, that should bring us great hope right there, the fact that you can thrive, you can survive in a society that puts God on the sidelines. And so, my prayer… Uh, for you, and really for me, that, uh, for this book, for this series, is that, is that one, that you, would, that you would thrive no matter what the world throws at you, amen? That no matter what the world throws your way, that you would thrive, that you would be, or that we would be sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, that we would not be sons and daughters of Babylon, but rather that we would thrive as we survive in this world as we are sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, amen? Now that's my prayer, and that's what I want for you. So Daniel chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse number 24, and, and as, uh, as I was preparing for this message, uh, this is kind of a, this is a crazy illustration, but as I was preparing for this illustration, all I could think about was, um, was a Sachero's big burrito. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Sachero's, Barbarito's, Chipotle, whatever. You know, they don't know small They make the burrito, and they throw everything, the kitchen sink is in there, right? And so you see this big burrito, and you go, how in the world am I going to eat that, right? And then about 30 minutes later, you go, that was so good. (laughs) Well, today, we have a big burrito in front of us. We have a lot of stuff to cover today. But I pray that when we're done, you are going to be so satisfied that you can still go get a Dairy Queen blizzard when we're done. But there's gonna be a lot, and so I ask you today that that you, that you stay with me. You have, you have your ears ready to hear because we do have a lot to cover today, uh, but this is a great, great chapter. I told you we're gonna start in verse 24, but let me set the scene for you. Um, we ended last week in verse 11, so let me give you just a, uh, an idea of what went on in verses 12 through 23. Uh, when we started daniel chapter 2 the atmosphere in the king's palace king nebuchadnezzar's palace has radically changed daniel 1 we ended daniel and his friends uh, shadrach meshach and abednego that's how we know them uh daniel 1 ended they're secure uh they've been promoted god's favor is upon them everything's great well then two years later daniel chapter 2 which means Daniel and his friends are now probably 17 years old. In Daniel chapter 2, the whole atmosphere changes because King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. He has a dream, and this dream disturbs him. It so disturbs him that he wants his his cabinet to come and explain it to him. Well, who's his cabinet? Well, his cabinet is none, none other than the occult, the ungodly demonic forces. It's the conjurers. It's the sorcerers. It's, it's the magicians. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls them in. And he says, listen, guys, I, I need to know this dream, and I need to know this interpretation. And so he tells them, tell me this dream. Well, these, this, this cabinet of his actually wised up pretty quickly. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, there's, there's no way. We can't tell you the dream. But here's what we want you to do. We want you to tell us the dream, and then we'll tell you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, 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 you you don't understand. I told you, you tell me the dream. And he said, now, guys, if you don't tell me this dream, here's what I'm going to do to you. I am going to tear you apart limb from limb. And these wise men said, oh, king, there's no way. We cannot do that. As a matter of fact, in verse number 11, these uh, conjurers, these sorcerers, these magicians, they said to the king, they said, king, what you request is difficult. Man, who can, who can declare this? And the, these men said, there is no one who could declare this except the gods whose dwelling place is not with the mortal flesh. In verse number 11 in your Bible, in your notes, you need to write this word, Transition. Because right here, this is God's transition. This is God's moment that he is is now going to put his chosen man into a very difficult situation. And he's now going to say, Daniel, it's your time. This is a moment of transition. And God is setting the stage for his man, Daniel. And the king says to these men, he says, off with your heads. In the next several verses, here's what we see happen is that King Nebuchadnezzar assigns his, his chief executioner by the name of Arioch. He says, "Arioch, go kill all the wise men in Babylon. And it just so happens that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are the wise men. And so here's what we see as we set the stage for this great prophecy here in the next few uh, verses. Here again we see Daniel's world Collapsing again. Everybody say the word again with me on a count of three. One, two, three, again. Daniel's world has collapsed again. You know, just a few years earlier, he had been kidnapped, right? He'd been kidnapped. He had been emasculated. He had been humiliated. He had been re-educated, and now he recovered. But here, he has a, 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 a death order on his name, and his world collapses again. Anybody ever felt like that before? God, again? Again? Come on, Lord, just... Two years ago, God, come on. You you got me through again, and now my world is collapsing again? This is Daniel. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, verses 12 through 23 shows us how Daniel responds to his world collapsing. And and again, and by the way, his, his world will collapse again later in the book. Daniel and the lion's den And so this is a kind of a story, a picture of life that collapses, kind of happen again and again and again. Amen? Well, Daniel, in verses 12 through 23, he shows us what a great way to respond to your, your world collapsing. Let me give you these four things real quick. It's not on the screen. Write these down. But here's four things that Daniel does real quick before God gives him this prophecy. The first thing that Daniel does is this. He does not panic. Verse number 14 in verse number 14, Daniel does not panic when his world collapses. Now, I don't know about you, but, but uh, panicking is sometimes our go-to thing, isn't it? When the world collapses, we panic. Daniel never, never panics. His world collapses, but he never panics. And number one, panic, he doesn't panic. Number two, he does something that we need to do as well. He finds a prayer partner. He's got his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his two friends. He hears that they have a, a death threat onto their neck, and he goes to his friends. His world collapses, and he goes to his friends, and they begin to pray. And just on a side note, so many of us, when things go wrong in our life, and this is what I've seen as a pastor and this breaks my heart that so many of us, we have bad things happen to us and we refuse to share anything with anybody and we refuse to share prayer requests with one another because we're like, you know, I just don't really want them to be involved in my life. I don't want them to think that something's wrong with me. Listen, folks, when something goes wrong in your life, when your world collapses, reach out to people. Reach out to your fellow believer in Christ. Reach out to them and say, man, I can't do this. My world's collapsing. I don't know about you, and this hasn't happened to me, I don't think it's happened to you, but I haven't had a, a death threat on my life. Have you? But I've had some other things have happened to my life. And I need somebody to come along beside me and pray for me. This is Daniel, he's given us an example. His world collapses, he doesn't panic, he calls on his friends to pray for him. Verse number 18, he expects God to help him. He expects God to help him. One of my heroes in the faith is a man by the name of William Carey, a great missionary, the forerunner of what we as Baptists call the International Mission Board, foreign missions. William Carey has a great saying. We have the saying in our house, uh, on a frame in our house, and it says this, um, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Listen, when you pray, man, you expect God to do it, that he's going to do it. And so Daniel's world is collapsing. Doesn't panic. He gets some prayer partners. He expects God to work. And then lastly in verses 19 through 23, he worships God. Amen. He worships God in the midst of a very difficult situation. He says, I can't control this, so I am going to worship God and God alone. Well, I just have a sermon right there and I think I will quit. Nah. We still have 45 more minutes to go. And I'm not going to. Because here's the great thing about Daniel's world collapsing and when God moves. Here in this story, this true story 2,600 years ago, when Daniel's world collapsed, that's when God came in. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. When Daniel's world collapsed, God came in. And what God does over the next several verses is he gives Daniel, he gives us one of the greatest prophecies that you're ever going to read. And this is exciting. Amen. Are you ready? Look at your neighbor. Say, I'm ready. All right, here you go. Write this down. Write this down. We'll get to verse number 24. Write this down. God knows the future. God knows the future. And because God knows the future, you can trust him. Whatever you're going through, you can trust him because God knows the future. Look at verse number 24, and let's walk our way through this. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, there's the king's chief executioner, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Daniel says this, "'Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon.'" Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Two things I want you to see about Daniel again right here. Notice these things. Again, his world's collapsing. He's got a death wish on his name. But there's two things that Daniel does right here in verse 24 that I think that we need to take a close look at because we know that God knows the future. Here's how we can live in the midst of these difficult times. Notice this. That the first thing Daniel does is this. He's concerned for other people. Do you see that in our text? You see that in our text, verse 24. Daniel puts others first. He says very quickly, he says, do not destroy who? Okay, okay, here we go. Let's, let's say it again. You respond. Okay, here we go. <laughs> do not destroy the wise men. Daniel says, don't, don't destroy them. He puts other people first. Folks, this is, if this isn't a fulfillment of the great commandment, I don't know what is. The great commandment is this, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Is this not Daniel? It's the great commandment. He's given us an example of how we need to put others first. Paul would later pick up this same theme, this same idea when he writes to the Philippians in in the book of Philippians, chapter two, verse three. One of my favorite verses when Dan, when Paul says this: "Do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit; rather, in humility, value others uh, but, better than yourselves. Consider others better than yourselves." One of the great hallmarks of Christianity, one of the hallmarks of a believer in Christ, is that no matter the situation, you always put others first. and We see this. So we see that he puts others first and the second thing you see this, you see his boldness. Look at the end of verse number 24 when he says, take me into the king's presence. Do you see it? Underline that. Circle that. In Aramaic, which is what this is written in, chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 7, verse 28 is written in Aramaic. This phrase, take me into the king's presence, it is a command. So he walks up to Ariok. Now, by the way, can you imagine this? Ariok knocks on the door. Uh, hey, Daniel, um, the king said, we're going to kill you. And then, can you imagine the boldness of Daniel just looking at this, this chief executioner, Daniel 17, and he says to this chief executioner, um, Take me to your leader. Can you imagine? No, you're not going to kill me. Take me to your king. And Arioch says, Okay, we're going to do just that. Look at verse number 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. Now, listen to this what Arioch says. King Nebuchadnezzar, I have found out beside, uh, out in the margin, Bible, write, write this phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretations known to the king. Ariok did not find this man, did he? No, Daniel came to Ariok, but notice this about Daniel. He's not complaining. That's been a theme, hasn't it? Notice that Daniel doesn't say, (coughs) 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 he doesn't do that, does he? He just keeps rolling on. He rolls on. Verse 26, and the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Folks, this is Daniel's chance. Do you see it? This is Daniel's chance. This is Daniel's chance to receive all the glory. This is his chance. Are you the one who can interpret the dream? Are you the one who can give me the interpretation? This is Daniel's chance to 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 tell the king that Arioch is lying. Amen This is the, this is Daniel's chance to say, you know what? No, this guy is messing me up No, this guy's taking all of my glory this guy. This is Daniel's chance now look what Daniel does verse 27 and Daniel answered before the king and he said yes king. I am that man It's not what he said did he it's not what he said he said Daniel answered for the king said as for the mystery about which the king has inquired neither wise men conjurers magicians or diviners are able to declare it to the king now verse 28 get ready because this we're about to go through the roof right here okay verse 28 he says however however there is a god in heaven wow Circle that that phrase verse 28 circle. However, there's a God in heaven circle it underline it put a star by that verse because scholars say this right here Verse number 28. This is the supreme theme of the book of Daniel One scholar called it this and I love this phrase. He said this this is the cardinal principle of the Bible however there is a God Amen However, there is a God in heaven. What a great message of comfort it is for us. What a great message that is for us, that there is a God in heaven. You know, there may be, for some of you today, there may be, your life may be falling apart. However, there is a God in heaven. You may be up to your eyeballs and alligators, I have no idea what that means. That just came to my head right there. <laughs> but there is a God in heaven. You may be at the end of your rope. And the weeds of this life may be choking you down and may be pulling you down. And you think there is no way that I can continue. Well, verse 28 tells us this. There is a God in heaven. And this is the message of hope. And this is the message that our world so desperately needs to hear, that there is a God in heaven. The atheists need to hear this. There is a God. I'm going to say that again. Okay? Maybe you're an atheist. I don't know. The atheist needs to hear, there is a God in heaven. The agnostic needs to hear that there is a God in heaven. The agnostic believes that, yes, there is some type of high being up there, but we really cannot be in a personal relationship with him. But there is some type of higher being that is up there. But the agnostic needs to hear that there is a God and he has a residence. He is a personal, he is an intimate, and he is a living God that will never leave his children alone in the middle of Babylon, in the middle of difficulties, in the middle of life that's collapsing. This God in heaven will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always with you, and our people need to hear that. Well, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, says, King These wise men, these conjurers, these magicians, these sorcerers, they can't answer your question or your dream. But there is a God in heaven, verse number 28, who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the later days. Just know that the word later days means in the future. So here we go. This is when Daniel jumps out of his current context he jumps out of his world that is collapsing, and now he jumps into biblical prophecy and eschatology. I like that term, eschatology, don't you? Do you know what that means? I don't either, but I like that word. <laughs> Here's what's about to happen over the next several verses. Daniel, he gives us a lesson in biblical prophecy and eschatology. And those are actually two different things. Biblical prophecy, biblical prophecy is the forth or the telling of future events that may or may not happen at the end times. Does that make sense? Is this telling a future event? It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next year. It could happen at the end times, but it's a future event. It is a prophecy. And so Daniel is about to give uh, the king's dream and interpretation. It's going to be filled with biblical prophecy. Some of it has already been fulfilled. Some of it has not. And so, but then he's going to give us a lesson in eschatology. Eschatology is simply this. It's the study of the end times. Eschatology always deals with the return of Jesus Christ. And here, with the next several verses, Daniel takes us on a wild ride. Well, verse 28, he says, O king, this was your dream. And the vision's in your mind while on your bed. And notice that Daniel does not say, uh, King, was this your dream? There's no question, is there? He says, this is your dream. He says, as for you, O king, verse 29, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. In other words, Daniel is saying to the king, God, the God in heaven, you remember that? The God in heaven revealed this mystery to me. And what he's, what he's saying to the king, what he's implying here, and we need to understand this as well, that, that, that Daniel is saying, God revealed this mystery to me, not because I'm better than anybody. Hello, Christians. Not because we're better than anybody. Daniel's saying, God revealed this mystery to me, not because I'm smarter than anybody. Daniel's just saying, remember, king, I'm just a 17-year-old prisoner of war a couple of years ago. God's favor is on me, but, 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 but king, I don't want the credit. All the credit belongs to God. And here's what I love about Daniel because as he gives biblical prophecy and as he talks about eschatology, he takes on the role, and you ready for this? He takes on the role of being an evangelist. You see, when you and I begin to talk about future times and we talk about Jesus returning, we talk about biblical prophecy, what we are doing is we are giving the good news because the good news is that Jesus Christ is going to return. The good news is is that, is that God has given prophecies already in Scripture. These prophecies are going to be fulfilled, and that's good news. And so Daniel takes on the role of an evangelist towards King Nebuchadnezzar, the most ungodly king at this time. He's an ungodly king who so desperately needs the God of heaven. I want you to write this down. Write this statement down. And I believe this right here. God can do great things to the one who doesn't care who gets the credit. But we need that in our society today, amen? Politicians, businessmen, churches, hello. God will do great things to the one who does not care who gets the credit, that we turn and give all the credit back to God. And Daniel, he does an amazing thing as he goes into evangelism with this king and he points King Nebuchadnezzar back to God. Well, verse 31 Here's the dream. He says, You, O king, you are looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Uh, That word awesome, the the Aramaic root word for awesome is fear. So it's fearful. Fearful. So Nebuchadnezzar has this fearful dream, and it's probably why it keeps reoccurring. He's afraid of this, but he sees this great, this great statue, this huge statue. Even some scholars say that there was, it was a glowing, it was, it was splendor, it was, it was glowing, it had a halo around it. And it's, a, it's scary to him. Verse 32, the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze. Verse 23, 33, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. But he says, that's not all of your dream, O Nebuchadnezzar. There's more to it. Now, can you imagine what's going on through Nebuchadnezzar's mind right now? Do you think his mind is going, this guy's got it. This 17-year-old is showing me up right here. How many of you older guys like to be shown up by a 17-year-old? That's what I thought, right? This is what happens. But he's like, king, I'm not done. Verse 34. And he says, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found but the stone. But that stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, jaw is on the floor. He's like, kid, you got it. You nailed it. And this was the dream. 2,600 years ago. It's crazy that we can remember that dream, right? How many of you dreamed last night and you don't even remember it? This dream is 2,600 years old. Verse 45 says the dream was true and trustworthy. as was the interpretation. Well, let's look at this for just a moment. Let's look at this image on the screen for just a second. All right, so here's the image. Here's the image of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Now what I want you to notice, notice the progression of the metals. Notice the progression of the metals. The head is made of what? Gold. Then we go to silver. Then we go to bronze, clay. Then ultimately the scripture says it turns to chaff. What's the progression? Do you see a decline? Absolutely, absolutely we see a decline, and scholars overwhelmingly agree with this, that each successive kingdom decreases in value, right? Scholars overwhelmingly believe that this is what this dream means, that that gold has more value than silver, which has more value than bronze, which has more value than iron and clay. But scholars will also say that just as it decreases in value, the further down you go in the kingdom, it actually increases in strength, right? Because iron um, is stronger than bronze, which bronze stronger than silver, and silver is stronger than gold. And so what we see in this picture or this dream is we see two viewpoints of Of kingdoms and of what's going on in the earth one we see man's view of his kingdoms lots of value man thinks that each succeeding kingdom is better than the previous one amen generations think they were better than the previous generation Oh, this is going to be better. This is going to be better. As a matter of fact, you hear this term in our culture today that, oh, as a culture, we are getting better. How many of you believe that? Hey, Amelia? no, because we're not, are we? But man's view of his kingdoms believe that we are actually getting stronger and getting better. But God sees what? That our kingdoms, as we move forward to the end of times when Christ returns, what God sees is mankind's, or man's kingdoms continue to go down. We lose our value. We lose our, um, our worth, if you will. Now, you may ask, looking on this, this statue, um, where does... The United States sit in this kingdom, or where, does, where do we sit in this kingdom? And we're going to talk more about this in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, but, but I believe, and Scripture would uh, affirm this, that, that we are living in an era in between the legs of iron and the feet, part of iron and part of clay. That is my uh, opinion, my theological opinion on that. Um, but uh, uh, so we're somewhere in there, and so what does it look like? Are we getting close to the end? Yeah, How do we know that? Because a great majority of the statue has already been fulfilled. It's already been fulfilled. But when God looks at man's kingdoms, he sees as we get closer to the end times, uh, each kingdom decreases their values, decreases its worth. I want you to think of the United States for just a few moments, please. And I'll ask this question, and you can just answer in your mind, in your heart. Have we decreased in our values? Yeah. With the soon coming presidential election, we see at the forefront, um, really theology is at the forefront, to be honest with you. We live in a day when we do not value biblical manhood nor biblical womanhood. There's clear biblical explanations of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Amen? We are we're merging these and people are confused because the United States has decreased although we think we're getting better. We live in a world that does not value the sanctity of life. Since Roe v. Wade, over 70 million babies have been aborted. Now, If you are a female and you have had an abortion, I am not saying these stats as a form of condemnation on you. That is not what that's about. Because God still loves you, even though your world may have collapsed. God is still in control, and he has never left you, nor has he forsaken you. He loves you. He loves you. But as a culture, we have declined our morals are in steady decline. Our language gets worse and worse and worse. And so we see as a kingdom, if our country does not change, Jesus himself said it this way a house divided. Cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. But we need to take comfort in this: God sees this coming. This is not catching God by surprise. As a matter of fact, we know it's not keeping. It's not God's not caught by surprise because He gave this dream twenty six hundred years ago. And it's being fulfilled right before our eyes. And in this dream, we will see, we will see that when Jesus Christ returns, he is going to crush all of the kingdoms that man has ever put up. As a matter of fact, not just crush them, it's going to be like chaff where the wind is going to blow them away and then God is going to set up his kingdom and he's going to reign supreme well. Look at verse 37. Y'all still with me this morning? Look at verse 37. Now he's going to tell king, king Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of this dream. He says, You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. And then he says these words, and this is how we know the biblical fra- prophecy and eschatology is what is uh, the topic here? He says this You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Right here, and we're not gonna talk about this today, we just don't have time, we'll talk about it later, but in, in your margin of your Bible, write this phrase The times of the Gentiles. Right here, when King Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroyed Judah, destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, sent them into exile here's what happened the time of the gentiles began which means now god is working through the gentiles he's kind of put israel to the side the church has not replaced israel This is not replacement theology where the church is now Israel. God has just put Israel to the side for a moment because he prophesied that. He said, if you do not obey me, I will send you off to exile. People who do not speak your language will rule over you and I will put you aside for a time. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus says this, when the times of the Gentiles are through, then we'll come back and we'll deal with Israel. Right now, we're in the times of the Gentiles. Now, that means that if you're a Jewish person, you can still become a believer in Jesus Christ. But as a country, as a nation, Israel has been set to the side just a little bit. We still support them. Amen? 100%. But at the end times, Jesus is going to come back and he's he's going to deal with them. But now we see the head of gold, and this is Nebuchadnezzar. It is the kingdom of Babylon, the most powerful nation at that time. When King Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon, you know how tall the walls were around his city of Babylon? 350 feet tall. They were 87 feet wide. And there was a moat around this city. The moat itself was 150 feet wide. King Nebuchadnezzar thought this kingdom was never going to end. Well, look at verse 39. Daniel says, God says through Daniel, after you, Nebuchadnezzar, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. How do you think Nebuchadnezzar felt about that? Inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze who will rule over the earth. So first we have Babylon, then an inferior kingdom uh, to you, and history proved that this next kingdom, the kingdom of silver, the arms of silver, the, the chest of silver, it is uh, the Medo-Persian empire, the Medes and the Persians. We're actually going to read about them later on in the book of Daniel. It's two kingdoms that have come together and they have ruled together. And this kingdom has been fulfilled. From the year 539 to 331 BC, the Medes and the Persians were in authority. Now, Here's something interesting. I want you to write this down. I want you to write down, write down this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty-four, verse twenty-four, through Isaiah forty-five, verse four, because Isaiah, writing years before Daniel, talks about the Medes and the Persians, their greatest ruler Cyrus the Great. They write it years before Daniel. And here Daniel is now giving this whole uh, dream and interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you, your empire is going, to be, is going to fall. There's going to be one inferior to you. And silver is, is the one. It's not as good as gold. It's going to be the Medes and Persians. We're going to see about that here later in Daniel uh, as we continue on. Then we have the third empire. This comes after the Medes and Persians. It is the belly and thighs of bronze. And history tells us that this is the Greek empire, which began in 331 B.C. and lasted till 63 B.C. or so, which is 300 years after Daniel gave this prophecy. He's being very specific. Does anybody know who the famous leader of the Greeks, what was his name? Everybody say Alexander the Great. Y'all are so smart. That's so good. So good. You actually read about Alexander the Great in all of our history books, but many of us fail to connect dots that Alexander the Great is a biblical, is within our biblical story. Alexander the Great was known to have conquered the, the entire known world and then wept because there was nothing left, left to conquer. Well, So did all this come true? Look at your neighbor and say, I think so. Yes, it came true. In verse 40, now we see a bronze kingdom. He says, the bronze will be replaced by the iron empire. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all those in pieces. Question, what do you know about iron? It is pretty what? It is strong. Well, this is historically known as the Roman Empire. The Iron Legion. The Roman Empire, which historically has been filled in 63 B.C. all the way up to uh, 436 A.D. But here's something interesting that you need to know about this fourth empire of iron and the Roman Empire. There has never been another world empire since the Roman Empire. And some scholars will say that we're still in this Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, some could say, and you could make a fairly good argument, that the United States of America still is a part of the Roman Empire. Why? Because we get a lot of our government systems from where? Rome. How many of you know this? Um, uh, Germany, before Hitler came into existence, uh, a leader in Germany was called a Kaiser, which is directly related to Caesar of Rome. It's it's a dialect. And so you can make the theological argument that we are still living in this Roman Empire, which is why I believe that uh, we are in between the legs of iron and of the feet of clay and iron. See, in verses 41 through 43, here's what we see. We see, I I believe, of a coming kingdom right before Christ returns— Ten toes. Ten kingdoms. And these kingdoms will try to come together, but like iron and clay, they will not mix. Some will be strong like the iron. Some parts will be very weak like the clay. And they don't mix. And what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation of the dream, he says this, this empire is going to fall apart as well. Well, You know, if we ended right here, there would be no hope. Isn't that right? There would be no hope. But let's read on, and then we're going to be done, and you will say, thank you, Jesus. Verse 44, this is good. In the days of those kings, I believe that to be the kings of the ten toes, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, that represents God's working, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Look at this. I love this next phrase. The great God The great God is made known to the king which will take place in the future. This dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. This is the future kingdom of God. And one day, one day, God is going to come back through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus will come again. He came came once as a baby He's going to come again as a king on the white horse. He will come and he'll set up his kingdom. And here's what he will do. He will crush all of man's kingdoms. He will burn them. They will crumble and they will blow away like dust. And this kingdom of God this kingdom of God, which we are promised if we are believers in his son, Jesus, this kingdom of God will never be destroyed. No man can overtake it. Nobody can conquer it. And it's going to last forever and ever and ever. And that's how history is going to end. We win. Therefore, when your world collapses... we can take great hope. As I was reflecting on how to apply this message, it's not the easiest message to apply because it's very historical. But I began to think of a song that, that, that I learned, maybe you learned it as well, maybe in Sunday school or maybe in some other venue, um, it's a famous song, it's a popular song, and uh, it's the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. You might <laughs> know that one? I'll be honest with you, I knew the song, but I didn't know the background to that song. But, but did you know that that song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hand, is, is actually an old African-American spiritual Actually, some history books say that it was written by a slave. What was Daniel? Hmm. But nobody really knew the song too much. It stayed within the African-American culture, and they would sing that song. But nobody really knew that song until a 14-year-old boy recorded it and it became famous. How old was Daniel? Do you see the parallels? And this young boy out of England recorded it, and he said this, he's got the whole world In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands. Hmm. As you go home today, remember, he's got the whole world. He's got it. You don't have to carry it. He's got it, and that's his promise, and it will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, I'm so humbled and awe of your declaration of the future and that you have it all under control. God, I know for me and I know for some and several in this room this morning that we much prefer to be in control ourselves, but God, we can't. And so right now, God, we as individuals, we as families, we as a church, we say to you that we surrender our control to you because you've got the whole world in your hands. And we say we trust you. Even though our world collapses again and again and again, you are faithful. You are the God in heaven. We turn to you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If there's anybody in this room this morning, maybe you have felt your world collapse again and you want to throw your fist up in anger towards God and Would you just let go of that and and release your fist and release your worries and release it to God and say, God, I trust you in your heart right now. Would you just say that to him right now? Say, God, I trust you. If there's somebody here this morning who has never trusted God with their lives for salvation, would you do that? Because when Jesus returns, it's too late. Oh, sinner, turn to Jesus. The stone turned to him. Well, pastor, how do I do that? You just turned to him and say, say, Jesus, I, I'm a sinner. I need you. Please come. Come be Savior and Lord of my life. If that's you, once you make that declaration, it says this, that the angels in heaven rejoice because one sinner has come home. Well, Father, may we rejoice that there is a God in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.